Well, I love hearing you sing, Calvary Bible Church. Uh, someone has rightly said that how a congregation sings tells you a lot about where their heart's at, and uh, so uh, grateful uh, to hear you worshiping uh, the King of Kings uh, corporately and individually. Well, we have a lot to be grateful for. I am especially grateful for uh, the blessing the Lord uh, brought to the congregation last week uh, as Austin Dosh, our director of outreach, brought us such a powerful message on 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, and really appreciated both his solid exegesis and then his engaging homiletics, and it's really exciting to me to see God raising up uh, a new generation of young Christian leaders. Uh, That is uh, such a blessing for us as a church, and Uh, such hope-giving for uh, the future of uh, gospel preaching in the U.S. Today's message from Isaiah chapter 6 is going to be on that theme of raising up uh, those who will go out into the harvest fields and serve the Lord. The message today is going to be an exhortation to respond to God's call the way Isaiah did when he said, here am I, send me. And it's also going to be an exhortation to respect God's sovereignty by then entrusting the results of our labors to him. So we're going to talk about responding to God's call and then respecting his sovereign results. To turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 8 through 13 this morning. And today is part three of our study of this vital concluding chapter of the first major section in the book of Isaiah. The first section goes from chapter one through chapter six. And so we're wrapping up this first section in our study of the book this morning. If you recall from part one of our study on chapter six, we began by asking a question from what we learned in chapter five. And that is this, how can a people, how can a society escape from the soul-destroying vortex of individualistic materialism, of immersive merriment, and of inverted moralism? Those were the things that had taken ancient Israel on a downward spiral in chapter 5. And so we've been asking the question, how can that be reversed? Since those same dynamics are clearly evident in our own society, how can we turn the tide? How can we get back on the right path? What is it going to take to do so? And we saw in week one that the first step in responding to the challenge of inverted moralism is to recover our awe of the majesty and the holiness of God. We studied verses one through four in part one, and that's what we saw. We saw the majesty and the holiness of God so poignantly described as Isaiah is brought into the very throne room of heaven and is confronted with the reality that God is holy, 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 that he is high and exalted. Then last time we were together, we began our study of verses 5 through 13, and if you recall, we pointed out that verses 5 through 13 are organized around Isaiah's three responses to his encounter with God. There are three identical phrases which appear, and that is the phrase, then I said. It appears in verse five. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. It appears in verse eight. Then I said, here am I, send me. And it appears in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? And so Isaiah's three responses to the reality of God's holiness and majesty are gonna teach us 
three things we need to do in order to turn things around, in order to escape the downward vortex of individualistic materialism, of immersive merriment, and of inverted moralism. So we're looking at three solutions to the crisis of inverted moralism. And the first is to respond to God's holiness with repentance. The second is to respond to God's call with readiness. And the third is to respond to God's verdict with respect. And the last time we covered that first and vital point, in order to reverse that downward spiral of inverted moralism, we must first of all respond to God's holiness with repentance. God's holiness requires repentance on the part of sinners like you and I. When Isaiah comes face to face with the majesty and holiness of God, he immediately confesses both his personal sin and the sin of his people. He knows that both original sin, that is corporate sin or the sin which infects all humanity, and his own individual sin make it impossible for him to be in God's holy and majestic presence without being absolutely ruined and condemned. So he cries out in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He responds with repentance and acknowledgement of his sinfulness. And then God graciously, as we saw in verses six through seven, we saw that God graciously commands one of the seraphim to take a burning coal from the mercy seat and to touch it to Isaiah's lips with it as an indication that God had provided atonement for his sins and had forgiven his sins. So from Isaiah's first response in verses 5 through 7, we've seen that we must respond to God's holiness with repentance. And that brings us now to uh, this morning's text, which is verses 8 through 13. And we're going to begin with verses 8 through 10, where we're going to see Isaiah's second response. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. So from Isaiah's second response, when he says, then I said, here am I, send me, we're going to see that in order to turn the tide of this crisis of inverted moralism, we need to respond to God's call with readiness. We need to respond to his holiness with repentance, and now secondly, we need to respond to God's call with readiness, he responds by saying, here am I, send me. He's ready to go. And that's how we need to be. We need to respond to God's call to go and preach his message. We need to respond with readiness to do so. I want to look a little more closely at verses 8 through 10. And the first thing I want you to notice from verse 8 is the clear Trinitarian language which appears in verse 8. The Lord is speaking, and he uses both the singular and the plural 
to refer to himself. He says in verse 8, whom shall I send? And I is singular. And who will go for us? And that is plural. So you have in one sentence spoken by the Lord about himself, both a singular and a plural. The Messianic Jewish scholar Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum comments, quote, what is unique in this verse is the contrast between the two personal pronouns, I and us. The speaker was God, and he used both pronouns of himself, thus showing both unity and plurality in the Godhead. The unity is seen in the phrase, whom shall I send? The plurality is seen in the phrase, who will go for us? Now, lest anyone doubt that this is inter-Trinitarian dialogue, John 12, verse 41 should end all debate because John cites this section of Isaiah 6 and says explicitly about Jesus, quote, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, referring to Jesus. John says Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke about him here in Isaiah chapter 6. And so without a doubt, the question that the Lord asks in verse 8 is inter-Trinitarian dialogue. The Father is asking the Son and the Holy Spirit whom they will send to deliver their message. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice what happens next. Here you have the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit and asking whom they will send to deliver their message, and Isaiah answers. Isaiah enters God's inter-Trinitarian conversation and asks God to send him. Here am I, send me, he says. This is stunning. I want you to think of how stunning it is for the Father to ask the Son and the Holy Spirit whom they will send and for Isaiah to pipe up and say, here I am, send me. This is stunning, especially in the context. Because if you remember from the previous verses, just moments earlier, Isaiah was so afraid that he was crying out in absolute terror. Woe is me for I am undone. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Just a few moments after he says that, he's, he's interjecting into God's conversation and saying, here am I, send me. Well, what caused this incredible transformation from terror to boldness? Well, it is what is said in verse seven. He touched my mouth with the burning coal and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven or atoned for. This is what atonement and forgiveness of sins does in a person's life. It instantly transforms you from someone who is rightly terrified of God's wrath to someone who can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Atonement and forgiveness transforms us from being an enemy of God to being a child of God, from being cut off from God to being invited into God's divine conversation, 
into personal relationship with him. Isaiah goes from being terrified that he's about to be destroyed to piping up when the Father is speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's transformed from terrified to bold and confident. And that transformation comes play, takes place through forgiveness. Can I ask you, can you approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that God hears you? Do you know that you're a child of God who has been atoned for and completely forgiven? If you can't approach God's throne with that confidence, then maybe you're still in verse five. Maybe you still need to humble yourself before God and admit your sinfulness and the justness of your condemnation, just like Isaiah did in verse five. And then you, like Isaiah, need to receive the forgiveness of sins on the basis of the atonement provided for you by God. That atonement, the coal on the altar, was a foreshadow of what Christ would do for us on the cross. Have you received his atoning sacrifice as your own? Have you believed in the forgiveness of sins that God grants by grace to all who believe? If you have received God's forgiveness, then you can approach his throne of grace with confidence. If you've truly repented and truly believed the good news of the atonement God has provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then you should, like Isaiah, have confidence to approach God's throne boldly, to ask him to send you, to say, here am I, send me. This confidence is explicitly encouraged in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, listen to what it says about our confidence before God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Notice he says, we have confidence. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. Well, how can we have confidence to enter the holy place since we're sinful? Since He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This is confidence. This is boldness. This is peace with God. This is assurance. And the Lord wants us to have that confident assurance. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Isn't that glorious? the transformation that occurs between the terror of verse five and the confidence of verse eight, we too can have that same transforming confidence. If a person will, as Isaiah did, and humble themselves before God, admit their sinfulness, then God will atone for them, forgive them, and 
grant them a supernatural boldness. First Peter 5, 6 says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. When the atonement is imputed to you by faith, you are granted incredible confidence, spiritual confidence before the Lord. So the lesson here, beloved, is that humble faith produces extraordinary boldness, confident assurance. And that boldness enables us to respond to God's call with readiness. When God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? We, like Isaiah, can say, here am I. Send me. You've provided atonement for me. You have forgiven me. So here I am. Here I am, Lord, in your presence. So send me. You have a message to send. Send me. Is that how you respond to the Lord's call? Do you respond with readiness? Well, answering that gets a little tougher when we read on. Look at how God responds to Isaiah's willingness to answer the call. He says in verse 9, he said, go. So, yes, Isaiah, go. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And God says, I am sending you. Go, Isaiah. But let's read on. He said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I don't know about you, but my first reaction when I read these verses was like, well, that was rather unexpected. I mean, based on the way I've always heard this passage preached, you would expect that verses 9 through 10 would describe a great and glorious revival. That God was sending Isaiah to go and preach, and his preaching was going to bring this great harvest, this great revival, and it was all going to end with joyous and thunderous applause. That's how I've almost always heard this passage preached. It's always kind of a hoorah-rah sermon. God says, who will I send? And we should all say, here am I, send me, and God's going to send you out, and he's going to do great things through you. Isn't this supposed to be the hoo-rah-rah section of Scripture? Where God calls, Isaiah accepts the call, a mass revival breaks out in Israel, and the coming exile is averted. It's not what happened. Why do you always hear sermons preached on this passage in a hoo-rah-rah way? Well, I think it has a lot to do with pastors wanting to preach uplifting and exciting sermons. Sermons that will motivate you to go to the mission field, to volunteer for ministries, to share your faith more boldly. And so it's tempting to preach an upbeat, feel-good, hoo-rah-rah sermon on this passage. Go out and change the world. Just sign on the dotted line here, my send me, and God will do great things through you. There will just be droves of people repenting. You'll start a great new movement. You'll go down in history as one of the greats. Just sign on dotted line you know verses 9 through 10 are the least preached on verses in this entire chapter have you ever heard a sermon on verses 9 and 10 
You've probably heard many sermons on verse 8. Here am I, send me. How many times have you heard, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. These are the least preached on verses in chapter 6. And that should not be. Because, and listen carefully, verses 9 and 10 are quoted six times in the New Testament. Not verse 8. Not even the earlier verses, but verses 9 and 10 are the most cited verses from chapter 6 in the New Testament. In fact, these two verses are cited more than almost any other Old Testament passage besides Psalm 110. All four Gospels cite verses 9 and 10. The book of Acts cites verses 9 and 10. The book of Romans alludes to verses 9 and 10. All four Gospels cite verses 9 and 10 because Jesus himself quoted these very verses as the reason why he taught in parables and only explained the meaning to his disciples. He cites these verses. Only the disciples, those who had repented of their sins, were given the explanation of the parables. Those who were not repentant were not given the explanation. And when the disciples say, why do you teach them in parables? Jesus cites these verses. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul cites these verses as an explanation of why so many of the Jews rejected the gospel and why he was being sent to the Gentiles. These are crucial verses throughout Scripture. And since verses 9 and 10 are what the New Testament emphasizes from Isaiah 6, it's sad that most modern preachers tend to skip them almost entirely. And I have a confession to make. My first draft did that. I was going to cover verses 9 through 10 in about two or three sentences so that I could focus on the hoorah of, here I am, send me. So I get it. I get why both myself and other preachers tend to gloss over these verses. If we're honest, we have to admit that these verses aren't exactly what we think will motivate people to respond to God's call. Why? Because we know that most people are motivated by invitations to jump on the bandwagon of success they are not motivated by calls to labor on and on without results. But to preach verses 8 through 10 as a hoo-rah-rah promise of glorious success, if you'll just sign on the dotted line of ministry commitment, simply doesn't fit what the text actually says. God tells Isaiah, go Isaiah and preach a message of judgment and keep on preaching that message even though no one will listen to you. Go Isaiah, preach. Preach a hard message which no one wants to hear and know in advance that they will ignore you, they will reject you and your message, but keep on preaching it anyway. That is the call that Isaiah responded to. And it was a hard calling. No one likes delivering bad news. No one likes being ignored. No one likes rejection. But that is what God was calling Isaiah to do. 
And Isaiah, by the way, wasn't the only one given the hard task of announcing judgment to a hard-hearted people who refused to listen. Listen to what God tells the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 27. Does this sound like a call you would want to receive? God tells Jeremiah to go and preach a message of judgment, and he says, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command and it did not even come into my mind. They were sacrificing their children to false gods. And so God tells Jeremiah, go and preach a message of judgment. They will not listen to you. They will not respond, but go and preach anyway. Jeremiah, by the way, is called the weeping prophet because his job, his assignment from God was to announce judgment to people who had already hardened their hearts past, now listen to me, past the point of no return. And the scripture is clear, Old Testament through New, that there is a point of no return. So to be God's spokesman, his messenger, his, and his ambassador seems really appe appealing if you are sent to reap a great harvest of souls, to experience the joyous gratitude of people whose lives were forever changed and then to be considered a success by other believers. Who do we consider to be successful in ministry? It's those who reap a great harvest. Well, by that standard, Jeremiah was an utter failure and so was Isaiah. You know, it's not hard to say, here am I, send me, if the task is to grab a basket to skip and dance, I was going to illustrate that physically and then I thought, that's gonna look so foolish, I'm just not gonna do it. But it's not hard to respond to the call if your task is to grab a basket and skip and dance into some beautiful meadow and hum happily as you gather a bountiful harvest which is just falling off the trees into your hand. With no effort, no heartbreak, no opposition, just glorious success. Not hard to say, here am I, send me to that call. But what if the task assigned to you is to grab a pickaxe, to head into a spiritual desert, and to chip away at the hard, dry, and stony ground for years on end? To carry heavy buckets of water back and forth for years just to prepare the soil for a harvest that you may not even see in your own lifetime. You see, there are cultivated gardens, but they didn't start that way. Someone had to take a pickaxe to the hard ground. Someone had to water it. Someone had to build the irrigation 
system to connect the water to the field. They had to prepare the soil and sow and reap and labor before the harvest would come. Everybody wants to go into the harvest and just pick the fruit of someone else's labor. Very few want to do the hard work of preparing a harvest that a future generation will reap. A couple decades ago, there was a really popular book and Bible study on how to know God's will, and one of the things said there was, look around and see where God is working and go there. Where is there a harvest? Go to the harvest. Can I tell you, I think that was terrible advice. Because for 20 years, people have gone where there's a harvest, and they've picked the trees bare, but no one has been taking a pickaxe to new soil. No one has been watering hard ground. And all of a sudden, we're looking around, where is the harvest? Well, everyone wanted to go where the harvest already was instead of working for a harvest to come. There's very few who, like Paul says, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. There are thousands, I'd say even tens of thousands, who are willing to reap the harvest once the fruit is already ripe on the trees in a well-manicured orchard which is pleasant to be in and requires very little opposition or frustration. But there are very few who will head into spiritual deserts and labor all their lives for a harvest that might still be generations in the future. That's why... What is the statistic? Something like 90% of all missionaries are laboring in lands already reached. Only 10% go to the unreached. We don't like hard commissions. We don't respond to hard commissions. But Isaiah was given a hard commission and he responded with readiness. His commission was to labor in hard and stony ground his whole life, to be ignored, to be persecuted, and eventually murdered by being sawn in two alive. All that labor, all that hardship, all that heartbreak, and all that effort had to seem like it was all in vain because he didn't reap the harvest in his lifetime. Hebrews says that the prophets saw the promise and welcomed it from afar but didn't receive it. It had to seem like it was all in vain. As verses 9 through 10 predicted, the people kept on listening but didn't perceive. They kept on looking but didn't understand. Their hearts were insensitive, their ears were dull, their eyes were dim, and they did not return to the Lord. And the judgment of the exile, which was prophesied in chapter 5, did come. It was not averted. Just like Pharaoh, the people had hardened their hearts so much and so many times that they passed the point of no return. And so God confirmed their choice and gave them over to their sin. Verses 9 through 10 are an example of what we call judicial hardening. Judicial hardening is when God gives people over to their sins. He confirms their choice. In the book of Romans chapter 1, there are three places where it says God gave people over to their sin. And each time the phrase begins with the word therefore or for this reason or because of this, showing that God's action of giving them over is the result of their choice to sin and to rebel. Romans 1 and other texts which discuss judicial hardening 
clearly teach that there is a cause and effect relationship between people's sin and God's judicial action. In condemnation, man initiates by sin and rebellion and then God responds by confirming their wicked choice with judicial hardening and judgment. But conversely, in salvation, it's exactly the inverse. God initiates by sovereign grace and the elect respond with repentant faith. So when scripture asks the question, why are the unsaved condemned? The answer is consistently because of their own sin and unbelief and hardness of heart. But when scripture asks a different question, why are the elect saved? The answer always is, is because of God's sovereign grace. Man is responsible for condemnation. God gets all the glory for salvation. In condemnation, man initiates and God responds. In salvation, God initiates and man responds. And that is why our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So listen as I explain this. Isaiah's mission was to preach a message of judgment to a nation who had already passed the point of no return. So was his mission completely futile? No. His ministry was not in vain because his preaching in that generation was the means by which the justice of God's judgment was made clear to that generation. And that's important. This week I was being reminded of the Nuremberg trials uh, that took place after World War II when the Nazi war criminals, those who were responsible for the Holocaust, were put on trial. And there were a lot of people back then that were like, what a waste of time. We know they're guilty. Just hang them. But wise people understood that there needed to be a trial. They needed to bring forth the witnesses who saw with their own eyes the people being gassed, who saw with their own eyes the teeth and the hair and all of those things that still, when you go through the Holocaust Museum, leave you so shaken. Those things needed to be brought out and shown. Why? So that the world would know that the judgment coming was just and so that the condemned would know that their judgment was just. Sometimes God sends us for that purpose to make it clear that his judgment is just. That's how God used Isaiah's preaching in that generation. But he also used it in a different way. He used Isaiah's preaching to encourage the believing remnant to endure even though the rest of the nation was in horrible apostasy. It helped them to hold on because they were hearing the announcements of judgment for rebellion and encouragements to stay true to the Lord. And then finally, God used Isaiah's preaching for future generations. He was swinging a pickaxe and watering hard soil, and that harvest would come in future generations. How many people have got saved through reading the book of Isaiah or hearing sermons on the book of Isaiah? And we know prophetically from the book of Isaiah that the great revival in the, amongst the Jewish people which will come during the tribulation will be connected to their final understanding of the teaching of this book. The point is this, when we carry God's message, it always accomplishes the purpose for which God sends it. 
Isaiah says this exact thing. He is, it is revealed to him in the words of the Lord in Isaiah 55, verses six through 11. Listen to this. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. By the way, this again is an indication there is a point of no return for people. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The book of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It says that ground which often receives the water and the seed and doesn't bear fruit is close to being rejected and condemned. So don't harden your heart. Today is the day of of salvation. A lot of times young people are like, hey, tell you what, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna spend the first half of my life really plunging into the pleasures of sin. Then I'll get right with God and do the Christian thing for the second half of life and I'll get the best of both worlds. Oh, dear friends, you can't have both worlds. You'll have one or the other. And too many young people think they can get right with God later, but you don't know, first of all, the length of your days. You may not have a later. And secondly, you don't know when you will have hardened your heart so many times and rejected the gospel so many times that God gives you over in judicial hardening and your opportunity for repentance is gone. We see this in the example of Pharaoh. God sends Moses to him and Pharaoh hardens his heart. God sends the various plagues and over and over again it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there comes the moment where the text is so striking because there comes another plague and then it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He had passed the point of no return. He'd hardened his heart too much and too many times. And so the exhortation is, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You don't know when the last gospel invitation will be given to you. So don't wait for the next one. It may never come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. See, this is God saying, my word never returns to me void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which I send it out God's word always accomplishes its purpose and that purpose is always twofold it is the salvation of the elect and it is the demonstration of the justice of the condemnation of the wicked this is taught explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when the apostle Paul says this thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. 
For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Now, by the way, that's where we like to end, isn't it? We want to be a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. But there's an and here. We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? What is he saying? He's saying, when we go out and preach the gospel, one of two things happen. Either people are saved or their condemnation is shown to be just because they not only rebelled against God, they rejected the offer of the gospel. These are hard truths, but they are important truths. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're sent out as ambassadors, and it says, we beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And when we beg them, they either reject the appeal or they receive it. If they listen, we reap an eternal harvest. If they don't listen and respond, was our labor in vain? The answer is no. Was Isaiah's labor in vain because the people refused to listen? No, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and so they must hear. They must hear the gospel. They must hear the good news. The gospel must be offered to them. It's important that everyone hears the free offer of the gospel. Because when they hear, one of two things will happen. They'll repent and believe and be saved or they will demonstrate the justice of God's righteous judgment. Gospel preaching magnifies the justice of God in the just condemnation of the wicked and it magnifies the grace of God in the glorious salvation of those who believe. Why is a person lost? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says they do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They don't receive the love of the truth. So we go and we preach truth. And there are those who receive the love of the truth and are saved, and there are those who refuse to receive the love of the truth and are lost. So when God calls, we can and we must respond with readiness. Readiness to reap a harvest if the seed falls on good soil but readiness to keep sowing even if the seed falls on stony ground or amongst the thorns. We need to be ready to faithfully deliver God's message even if the ground is hard and no one listens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, we read these, these words, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We always triumph. To some were a fragrance of life to life, to some a fragrance of death to death, but God's word always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent out. And that means that we can go to hard places knowing that God will use us and if there's no harvest in the first year, we can keep going knowing that God is accomplishing his purposes through us. We don't have to just go to easy places. We can go to hard places and hard peoples knowing that God will use us if we will, like Isaiah say, here am I, send me. So the question is, how will you respond to God's call on your life? And how will you respond if the call is a hard call?
Will you respond with readiness? Will you say, here am I, send me? Well, there is a third response of Isaiah that we'll cover just briefly, and that is in verses 11 through 13 where we see that we need to respond to God's verdict with respect. Look at verses 11 through 13. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. In Isaiah's third response, we're gonna see that we need to respond to God's verdict with respect. Notice that in verses nine and 10, God tells Isaiah that he's gonna preach and no one's gonna listen, and notice that he does not challenge the Lord's verdict. Rather, he accepts it and and then very humbly asks, well, Lord, how long is this hardness gonna last? How long is this judgment of exile gonna last? Lord, how long? He doesn't challenge the verdict. He respects it, accepts it, and seeks clarification. And the Lord answers his question, says there is gonna be an exile and the land is gonna be left desolate and people will be taken away. And this is, of course, heartbreaking news for Isaiah. But he respects the Lord's verdict. He accepts his responsibility to be the bearer of bad news. He respects God's verdict and then faithfully announces it to the people, just like a court reporter does. A court reporter, their job is to clearly and accurately read out the verdict. They can't change it. They can't modify it, not even in a word, because to do so would be to disrespect the law, the court, and the judge. And that's our job as well. We are to read out the Lord's verdicts and not change it at all. We're not here to airbrush things. We're not here as to try to make it more palatable to people. You know, one of the reasons why I think that things are going so poorly in our society is that too many pastors don't have respect for the Lord's verdicts, and their preaching shows it. God says judgment is coming, and they say peace, peace. God says turn from your wicked ways so that you may live, and they say God accepts you just as you are. No need to repent. They don't respect the Lord's verdict. Instead, they try to modify it, soft pedal it, or make it more palatable and more positive. They tell people what their itching ears want to hear, not what the judge has said. In their pride, they think they know better than God. They're going to overrule the judge, they think. And they're going to appoint themselves to be God's PR consultant instead of his messenger. They think God is trying to win a popularity contest and they think they know how to boost his poll numbers. So they're gonna airbrush it and they're gonna change it and they're gonna make it sound better and more palatable to sinners, but they forget something. God is not a politician and he is never up for re-election. He's the king of all kings, lord of all lords, judge of all judge, judges. And so when he reads out a verdict, our job is to deliver it precisely as it is. 
we must respect his verdict. You know, a lot of times in our evangelism, we rightly love to share John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But boy, how we like to skip over that little word, perish. And that's why our evangelism is so ineffective. We're telling people to be saved and refuse to tell them what they need to be saved from. We love to preach the good news of John 3.16, but we rarely share the sobering warning of John 3.18, which says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. And then we wonder why people aren't motivated to be saved. Well, we haven't shared with them what they need to be saved from. We need to share the promise of John 3.16, but don't fail to share the warning of John 3.18. We're ambassadors, and we must share the king's message in its entirety, and it is a promise of salvation to all who will repent and believe, and it is a warning of judgment to all who harden their hearts. So we must follow Isaiah's example of responding to God's verdict with respect. Well, that takes us to the end of our journey through chapter six. And in Isaiah's three responses to the holiness of majesty of God, we've learned three things we must do to stem the tide of individualistic materialism, of immersive merriment, and of inverted moralism. We must respond to God's holiness with repentance. We must respond to God's call with readiness, and we must respond to God's verdict with proper respect. At the end of chapter five, I ask the question, is there any hope? Is there any hope? I wanna end with the last verse of chapter six because the answer to that question is yes. Verse 13 says, after all of this judgment and all of this bad news, there's a beautiful word in verse 13 and it's the word yet. Yet, there will be a 10th portion in it. There will be a remnant It will again be subject to burning. Tribulation's coming. But like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. The nation is gonna be like a tree cut down, leaving only a stump, a remnant. But flip over to chapter 11 and see what God is gonna do with that stump, with that remnant. Isaiah 11, verse one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to say he's gonna rule in righteousness. And then verses six through eight talk about how the lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be peace and justice in the land, in verse nine says, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Out of the stump will come a branch, will come a shoot, the root of David and it will spring up into a glorious harvest which, and all the nations will find their life and their peace in his branches. This, of course, is referring to the coming of Christ. Yet there is hope. 
there's gonna be a stump left, a remnant, and from that remnant will spring the Messiah. And so we end with the glorious words of Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth, cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel." that is good news by God's grace as the New Testament teaches we've been grafted into that glorious promise so let's respond to God's holiness with repentance to his call with readiness and to his verdict with respect giving praise to him for that glorious word yet there will be Lord we're grateful that even such a hard passage comes to an end with such glimmering hope, the messianic hope, long awaited by the Old Testament prophets, realized when you came, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when you gave your life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, when you rose from the dead. But Lord, we know the final fulfillment will come when you return and establish your kingdom. And so Lord, we await you and we place our hope fully in you You are our salvation. And we do give you praise with joyous hearts because of your grace and mercy and love towards us. We pray that we would respond to your holiness with repentance, that we would respond to your call with readiness, that we would respect your verdicts. Help us to do that, Lord, so we may glorify you in our generation and in our time and place. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.